0: Hi, I'm Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. It is the 10th of November, 2017, and this is the Room now Week in Review. Actually, it's a whole lot more than the Week in Review. It's the ACR 2017 Meeting in Review. We just got back from San Diego. The meeting started on Sunday, ended on Wednesday. It was jam-packed. It was really quite a good meeting held in San Diego, a great host town. And we posted, from RoomNow, we posted almost 900 pieces of news items Uh, on our website and on our microsite for people to follow along and see what we did. My congratulations to the 13 individuals who served as RoomNow faculty who did really a fabulous job uh, in covering the meeting. So in trying to review the meeting, that would be impossible. You really should go to the website and take a look at that. It's acr17.roomnow.com. You can view it by day. Uh, You can view it by topic. You can view it by gout or ankles and spondylitis or psoriatic arthritis, whatever you know floats your boat, it's all there. Uh, a lot of tweets, which are basically single statements from a, a session that was a teachable moment. Um, there were a number of good articles written along the meeting that summarized some of the sessions. There were great videos done by 70 of your, uh, 70 videos or more of your best friends and faculty and KOLs uh, talking about their work. So I'll cover a few things today. Uh, At the top of the news, I think I want to cover uh, a plenary session that was done by Dr. Greg Silverman of NYU in New York, where he had a really novel presentation on the microbiome and lupus. Uh, Check out the video that we have that uh, you can find on the website where he sort of summarizes the whole event, but basically what he did was he studied lupus patients. and and looked at their microbiome, had to recruit enough patients to do this, and they uh, genetically analyzed the species that were involved in the microbiome. And They basically found that if your lupus was inactive with a sleet eye score of two or less, you pretty much had a normal microbiome compared to normal controls. However, that when they uh, looked at increasing levels of activity, they found an expansion of a single species that uh, was called rheumatococcus novus that uh, it was unique and that, more importantly, they were able to show that as disease activity level went up, so did the levels of the species, uh, and so did its association or uh, correlation with double-stranded DNA production and the risk of lupus nephritis. So this is a very novel finding, maybe one of the first actually showed that uh, a microbiome change is clinically correlated with the outcomes, Uh, and this may be a whole new line of of therapy and investigation in lupus. Congratulations to Greg and the, and the team at NYU. Uh, secondly, I want to point out that if you go to the, the website or the microsite, you can actually pick up podcasts from each day, day one, two, three, and four. We took the video casts from all of our faculty and all of our friends and key opinion leaders and research uh, presenters that we got to do videos with and we strung them together in one-hour videos for each one-hour uh, podcast for each day. I think you'll find those uh, useful, especially if you do long drives or you run and like to listen to something. You can download those uh, from SoundHound or you or from iTunes, and you can follow those and get a taste of the meeting at least from the room now perspective. Uh, I'll, uh, my third uh, news bit comes from my own center, and this is a, 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 a senior resident at the Baylor University Medical Center. Baylor Scott & White University Medical Center in Dallas, Dr. Brooke Mills, who's been working with Catherine Dow and Rachel Tate and myself in developing the plan registry. This is a pregnancy and lactation registry, uh, and kudos to them, this is abstract 355, where they basically were able to enroll over 150 patients and survey them about uh, their plans for pregnancy, their impressions of pregnancy and lactation, Uh, And and interestingly, they showed in their report that over a third of patients changed their plans regarding lactation, and over half of them changed their view of pregnancy once they got their diagnosis. So the point of the registry is really to assess women uh, by surveys as far as their impressions and perceptions and how the disease colors all of that. And what they really found at its core was that the diagnosis, the disease, the drugs we use significantly impact the patients and their thinking about their future, about their pregnancy future, whether or not they plan to uh, breastfeed in the future, uh, and maybe even how they will take therapy. So this is the beginning of a prospective registry. Uh, I think it's an important advance from the perspective of looking at women uh, and their uh, impressions and and plans for the future, especially what happens after they deliver the baby. So this will be very valuable uh, information in the future. Next, Jeff Curtis had a really good uh, plenary session on bisphosphonate holidays. Uh, and in his report, he looked at uh, a, a large number of, of people who uh, were being followed for uh, in, in claims data uh, and specifically looked at those who had not been on a bisphosphonate, uh, started bisphosphonate, and alendronate sort of led the way with uh, the bisphosphonate, and then saw what happened when they stopped their bisphosphonate? So, on average, this very large cohort ha- had been off of a bisphosphonate for uh, uh, almost three years. I think they had to be on a bisphosphonate, and then we looked at their index point of being of stopping of bisphosphonate. And what he saw was that there was a clear cut increased risk of fractures, especially hip fractures, uh, as time went on. The point being that a drug holiday, you know, shouldn't be forever that uh, the longer you went on when there was the numbers got increasingly greater as far as fractures. And once it got up to two years and above, that's when the fracture started to take off. And, I, and again, it was about a 40% increase in hip fractures uh, after two years. So uh, I think it's important because I'll have to go back and tell my patients, uh, maybe you don't want to uh, be off this bisphosphonate too long. That we'll go off for a year. Uh, but especially, I think the rule is if the patient has osteoporosis and is at high risk for fracture, going on a drug holiday makes no sense at all. The the benefits of the bisphosphonates far outweigh the risk. If they're in you know, the osteopenic and, and, and low number range, there may be a good uh, rationale to a, a drug holiday. And, and this data tells me that I might want to do it for a year, but not beyond two years. Another great plenary session came from Park et al. And we have a, a video by that. I think Cassie Calvary's had a great video explaining what happened. Uh, and they specifically looked at RA patients who were going to get influenza vaccination. And they had a pilot study to look at different time periods where you might want to stop the methotrexate. And based on that data, uh, and they wanted to see the data that uh, had the best immune responses to the vaccine and the least amount of uh, flare of rheumatoid arthritis they decided that they would stop methotrexate at the point of influenza vaccination and be off of methotrexate for two weeks and then go forward. And in fact, they were able to show that they met all their, their benchmarks uh, of, you know, a four fold immunization and titers, seroconversion, um, low low risk of, 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 of actually developing influenza and very low chance of developing a flare of their rheumatoid arthritis. So. I think this was an important uh, report because it will go back and change your practice. What I'm going to do based on this is I see an RA patient who needs to be vaccinated. We'll vaccinate them against influenza and tell them to hold their methotrexate for two weeks, but then resume it thereafter. Again, it doesn't matter if they're on biologics or not. This is an active virus, uh, so it can be given at any time. And methotrexate is the only drug you you should manipulate. There was no other advice uh, about what to do with prednisone or other DMARDs. That wasn't studied here, so I can't advise you here. They many people are on nonsteroids and steroids uh, and methotrexate, but again, you're, you can keep all those other medicines going, but with regard to methotrexate, hold it two weeks and then proceed. Uh, another great presentation was a late breaker from Phil, Philip Meese where he described the results of secukinumab in psoriatic arthritis patients. This was called the Future 5 study. Uh, and I, I, the, here they looked at um, uh, basically x-ray outcomes showing uh, that whether you had 300 milligrams or 150 milligrams or placebo, that those patients that were on secukinumab had uh, radiographic protection uh, over time. That was impressive. Uh, and, that, uh, and they also looked at a group that didn't have a loading dose. So it seemed like, again, all the outcomes are about the same for all the groups. The only thing here was that for me to take home was that and you should look at the video and see what Philip has to say about it. But the patients who didn't have a, a loading dose actually um, did very well, provided that they were not a TNF inhibitor failure. If they had not previously failed the TNF inhibitor, getting a loaded dose, loading dose didn't wasn't as important. But if they were previously a TNF inhibitor failure, you probably should use the IV loading dose and then go on with your usual regimen to obtain optimal Efficacy responses and safety outcomes, but also x ray outcomes. So, again, I think that's really for the efficacy point, you, you should divide patients up into whether or not they were, are naive or not to a TNF inhibitor. Upon a plenary session, abstract number 1788, looked at the osteoarthritis initiative and identified patients who had intraarticular steroid injections. And basically, they showed that if you did, um, that you are at much greater risk of developing uh, knee progression and the need for knee replacement. Uh, much as a five-fold increased risk if you were getting uh, an intra-articular knee injection. So now, again, does that mean we shouldn't use it? Uh, again, uh, there was a lot of debate at the meeting about whether this is uh, truly important or whether this is confounded by indication that obviously people with pain and worse disease are going to get more and hence they're going to be later uh, patients who will progress and may need re- replacement. But I think it does tell us that there could be a, a downside to injection. And there are recent reports in the literature certainly saying that if patients do need future uh, knee replacement, that they should not have an a intra-articular steroid injection within six months of planned replacement because the complication rates, the infection rates are much higher. This data about injection and progression suggests that, again, it might be a marker for patients who will progress uh, and that you shouldn't be doing this unless there's an intended benefit um, and not necessarily a plan for replacement. So again, somewhat debatable. Look at the data yourself um, and, and look at what we have online. I think you'll be interested in this data. Uh, and I found one of the one of our, a number of our friends. In fact, they did videos. Alan Gabowski did a video uh, on a paper that I didn't know about, where he talked about uh, prednisolone, uh, prednisone use, uh, and steroid use in general as a, a, a financial marker for the cost of care in rheumatoid arthritis. Dividing patients up into those are on no and less than seven, and this was, it was low, medium, and high prednisone use, divided by increments of 7.5 milligrams. He was able to, or saw that there was a significant increase in the total cost of care in those patients. So it's not surprising that prednisone would therefore be a, a surrogate marker for patients with the worst disease, uh, and that in itself is instructive. But it's a nice snapshot of your patients who you are taking care of. To you know, a lot of patients are on five, but once you start getting about five, you should be thinking about how well am I doing here, and if prednisone is really part of the solution or part of the problem. So uh, again, it does show clear correlation between the amount of prednisone being used in a daily dose and the overall cost of care. They didn't express that in outcomes like death and surgery, but you can assume that they'll go up as things get worse. Uh, A novel thing that I learned at this meeting was the potential involvement of of a a jack inhibitor, baricitinib, uh, in improving pain. Now, certainly you would expect that all drugs that work improve pain, whether it be any biologic, TNF inhibitor, DMR, doesn't really matter. They all improve pain. That's part of the outcome measures. But in this particular study, which was actually reported by Peter Taylor, was a sub-analysis of one of their studies where they had a head-to-head between baricitinib and patients on adalimumab and placebo. And they showed that baricitinib patients, the JAK inhibitor, had a far greater and faster reduction in pain scores than did the patients who were on the TNF inhibitor or placebo. So again, does that say something unique about baricitinib or JAK inhibitors? Like, again, this is early research. I think the company is going to look at this further. But it's an interesting question to look at um, going forward. Could there be a differential response in pain responses um, on uh, a JAK inhibitor or or specifically baricitinib? It remains to be seen. We do know uh, that it's very hard to quantitate what happens with the TNF inhibitors. I've written about on Room Now that TNF inhibitors are associated with the born-again rheumatoid thing. That you give someone a TNF inhibitor, they feel fantastic right away, even before their joints are better, and they want to go bungee jumping and join the Marines. That's the born-again thing. It's almost like it's a CNS effect, more so than a joint-specific effect. I don't think that this is what they're talking about with, with baricitinib and jack inhibition. I think they're specifically talking about pain. So this needs to be looked for in the future. Uh, we had a nice video on our site from Dr. Olga Petrina, who reviewed the results of a session where uh, authorities at Methodist Hospital in New York have developed an algorithmic approach to patients with scleroderma, specifically to look at uh, pulmonary hypertension. Uh, and they, they, on their algorithmic approach, they, you know, they want to look at patients who have, who have early disease, of course, but really screening should begin in those with three years or more of disease, and they look at things like the ratio of FBC to DLCO, uh, to presence of telangiectasias, uh, BNP, uric acid, um, EKG showing right axis deviation, all being indicators in the algorithm for one for whether one needs to be screened further with uh, an echo uh, first, and then ultimately later, later, maybe right heart catheterization. So I think it's an important advance because uh, I see these patients And my decisions about pulmonary hypertension as a risk are more driven by symptoms and worry that come on late rather than being proactive and identifying this problem early on, which is the point of the presentation, having an approach that identifies patients early. So congratulations to Olga Petrina for finding that. Uh, My last report, I think, is just a synopsis of uh, the opening lecture, the keynote speaker, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the head of the uh, infectious disease division at the NIH. Uh, Tony has been around for a long time. He's the editor of Harrison's textbook of internal medicine. He's on Nightline. He's the go-to guy on infectious issues in the United States. And his presentation was uh, another masterful presentation uh, from a, a, a man who knows how to educate and get the message across. And he spoke really about his career serving under five presidents, beginning with Ronald Reagan, uh, next with George Bush, Sr., then Bill Clinton, then George Bush, Jr., and then uh, lastly, uh, Barack Obama. And, and really going through the infectious complications that he has witnessed and managed uh, over five different presidents uh, and, and a career uh, in medicine. And he, during this time, he covers HIV, SARS, swine flu, Ebola, um, and lastly, the Zika virus. Uh, as things to worry about and how how he dealt with those. Really a novel presentation, um, one that could only be done by the master like Tony Tony Fauci. And in the end, his take-home was that we need to have plans for global surveillance. We need to have transparency and communication between uh, our government, the White House, and our researchers. There needs to be an infrastructure and a capacity to uh, develop programs as need be based on need. What he basically said is every presidency, and this was advice to the new Trump presidency, every presidency is going to deal with a, 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 a pandemic and, 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 and an epidemic in our uh, country that will affect the populace and that they're at the forefront in dealing with this. Uh, they also need to have a, pl- a platform for, for developing new technologies, especially vaccines. He showed that the development of vaccines went from uh, over 24 months, I think, or 20 months, in the beginning, down to 3.5 months with development of a Zika virus vaccine, and that there needs to be a public health emergency fund for funding of a lot of these uh, individual problems. So congratulations to Dr. Fauci for, again, another masterful presentation that benefits his friends in rheumatology. uh, He said he was once a rheumatologist. I still think he is. Uh, Lastly, I want to congratulate the ACR and its staff for all their hard work at a great annual meeting. It really was a success. We should also thank our outgoing president, Sherrod Lock and Paul, who really kept his finger on the pulse of developments in the government, issuing a lot of new policy statements uh, that were uh, beneficial in, in having a voice uh, at, a, at a national level and with the new administration. And congratulations to Dr. David Dyke for um, becoming the new incoming president of the ACR. We wish him um, a lot of luck, and we certainly look forward to his leadership and guidance for all the things that affect us as a rheumatologist in 2018 tune into room now go to the website to get these links and more go to acr17.roomnow.com if you want to see what happened at the last meeting thanks so much